to the King's Insider Podcast on csncalifornia.com. Introducing your host, Sacramento King's Insider, James Ham. Welcome to the King's Insider Podcast. I am James Ham. Joining me on this first segment and only segment, Mr. Aaron Bruski, NBC Sports. What's up, baby? I am chilling. It's a good day. I mean, after the first game of the season, you know, we actually get sleep around here. It's really nice. Yeah, there was folks n- should folks should look into it. There was not a lot of sleep for James on on opening day. There's not. There was not. So it, it, that's the way it goes. No complaints. No complaints. I absolutely uh, am loving loving this world. So it's uh, it's very intriguing what's happening on, in, in Kingsland, and we the reason why we were going to go with no guests tonight. Is because we had the home opener, but we have a like myriad of issues floating around, and I think having a guest might whitewash some of the things that we would like to talk about and, and really sort of center the the programming on something different. So we're going to start off with a couple of topics, and we're going to really just you know beat you down with them, and, and I hope that's all right, podcast listeners. Uh, but there's some heavy stuff going on, Aaron. First and foremost. Just give me your overall thoughts on the opener. What it what stood out to you in the opener? We'll start there, and then we're going to bust into a whole bunch of stuff. I, I'm going to go completely meta here and say what struck me watching the opener was the apprehension in the team for the first, say, five minutes, definitely the apprehension in the crowd, and then the team not folding. And from an overall perspective, I thought that the Clippers played – Maybe they're like B or C game. And I thought the Kings also played their B or C game. So both teams weren't sharp. Uh, the Clippers, though, in, in relation to last year, where they came into the season out of shape and disinterested, this year they started showing signs that they were ready to play in China. And so a lot of stuff I'd said previously about them sleeping, I just kind of cut cut loose from that. There was, there was no... No, no Clippers taking the Kings lightly. They they came in and they were ready to play, and you saw that right from the jump. Yeah, I'm going to say that maybe some of the apprehension from the crowd was that uh, Vivek Ranadive and the Sacramento Kings ownership decided to hand out wrist bracelets to everyone in the stands. And then during the national anthem, when a guy hit a high note, all of a sudden everyone's wrist bracelet lit up. And I think everyone <laughs> everyone in the building just went, oh my gosh, mind control. Oh my gosh, <laughs> it's happening. Mind control. They've got us. Well, you got those robots. That, that to me was almost the story of the under the radar story of opening night. The second opening night was those damn robots. The giant that, robots. That to me was hilarious. And you know what they look like? Really? Because I've run it. I, I ran into them. I knew I, I like had pictures of them and everything else. I didn't do like a selfie with them people, but I saw them. I took pictures they really look like those old um, air fresheners that you find in the bathroom where you kind of like, you pull the thing up a little bit and the smell would come out. You know what I'm talking about? What was, the, what was the movie with the robot that was like a Pixar movie? It was like, not Up. Not Wally? Up. Wally. Wally. Yes. Kind of looked like Wally. Uh, I don't know. They weren't square. I mean, they, they really, they look like an air freshener to me. Either way, they were different. It was weird. I don't know what was going on. And you know what? It's a perfect segue. You know what they didn't catch, Aaron Bruski? They didn't uh, catch a near, like, felony crime by Austin Rivers. You know, I've never understood that. When a player at an arena does something that would get somebody else at least a talking to from a police officer, 
and they just get the fine. It's like, how does that even happen? You know, like a hockey fight. It's like you get two guys beating the crap out of each other. So but that's OK because it's a hockey match. But if like you're on the street and you see two guys getting into it, both guys get arrested. How does that work? I, I don't know because you're right in hockey and then every once in a while there's that that egregious guy who goes after somebody with a stick and then they're like oh man you know what they're gonna do here it's possible the police could come and arrest him and it's like wait a sec they didn't arrest the other 800 guys for beating someone senseless and dropping their heads on the ice so why would they beat why would they arrest someone for using a stick all right so I I had an advantage that's different than almost anyone else in the building on this situation. And it's very difficult because you don't want to be part of the story. And I found myself in the midst of a story on Wednesday night during the opener. So I sit on the tall table behind the Clippers bench. And the Clippers bench, you know, just so you know, it's it's actually a fun bench to sit behind. I know one year I watched uh, Blake Griffin pull bubble yum bubble gum out of his sock like a whole pack, and then he threw some to Matt Barnes, and they they shared, you know, sock warm bubble gum, bubble gum. Uh, they're actually a very intriguing group of people. A lot of people don't like them, but when you add even Josh Smith and Lance Stevenson to that team, Lance Stevenson started to heat up in the in the fourth quarter, talking trash to Karan Butler, and that's when you see when you saw Karan Butler like go off. And just start dropping shots and taking people off the dribble. You're like, wait a sec. You're like 35 years old and you're just killing people. It was because Lance Stevenson was talking smack to him and he was talking back uh, while Stevenson was on the bench. Anyway, the bench is very, very, very interesting. And things spun out of control so quickly. I, I don't even, you know... That game, it lent itself to like wild emotional ups and downs. I mean, the Kings trailed by, you know, up to 15, but 11 going into the fourth quarter. Really, they, they had no business being in that game. I think we can both agree. And then we have this wild run. So let's start there. We'll start with the wild run. What were your thoughts on how the Kings came back in this game? And then we'll play them into what actually happened there in the late game. I think they just settled down and finally started getting to business. I, I mean, really, the whole the whole the whole game was marked by offense that just wasn't quite clicking. And so the fact that they were actually able to stay in this game to me was was quite a, a surprise. Um, but yeah, I mean, they just start clicking, and, and that's to me how things started getting getting back for the Kings and the fact that the the Clippers, you know, may have let their their foot off the gas a little bit. I don't know. What, what did you think? I think the Clippers left a team in front of one of the better crowds in the NBA, a packed house, an emotional crowd that's sitting there, you know, last home opener in the history of Sleep Train Arena slash Arco Arena, although we don't even need to talk about the whole Arco debacle that happened earlier in the day. Um, I think that they left a team in, in a game, and then that team – um, figured out a way to allow their talent to supersede their experience and chemistry together. And next thing you know, the Kings were right in it, and it was close. So let's get to like the four-minute mark. And it's right around the four-minute mark this happened, uh, three, four-minute mark. Uh, the Kings just keep coming at the Clippers, and they keep bombing away from three. Uh, Cousins, what, four or five from for the game from three. Uh, they hit some big threes down the stretch. You know, Caspi hit a big three. 
So momentum was building, and Doc Rivers calls a timeout. And it's your standard timeout, but uh, Doc Rivers' son, Austin Rivers, comes over to the bench. And he caught my eye not, like, right away, because he came over and he didn't mix with the rest of the group. And then he actually punched one of the benches. And that caught my eye because the whole thing kind of, like, shakes. So I had actually looked away for two seconds, and as I'm looking back, this giant saucer-like object flies right past me, right into the stands. The gentleman in the front row, and I'm, I'm now going to sell you out. Scott Marsh of 1140, you ducked. You ducked and you let the woman behind you take a giant <laughs> seat cushion right in the face. I saw you, Scott Marsh. You, you are ducked. you are selling him out. That you is awful ducked, of you, James. You ducked. I cannot believe you ducked. Anyway, Scott Marsh ducks, and this—I uh, would say she's probably uh, maybe thirty, maybe uh, blonde-haired woman sitting in the stands. Really wasn't watching the action. It was a timeout, so it's not like there should have been a ball flying into the stands or anything. She takes a giant foam seat cushion to the face a complete facial like right across the eyeballs now let me explain what this thing was uh the clippers and this is kind of this is a new thing that i haven't seen i've seen it in the past especially with bill waltman and a few of kevin McHale. um they stack up cushions on the bench seats because the kings when they the the bench isn't really they're not that much different than like a standard fold-up chair with like a nice cushy seat. Um, but the problem is that NBA players are much taller than a standard person. And the last thing you want if you have back issues is for your knees to be above your hips. So what they've done is the Clippers have these these giant foam pads. And they're like between five and six inches thick at least. And then they're about 18 by 18. They just kind of sit right onto what the seat cushion already is, but they lift you up. So again, your hips are above your knees. And uh, they they say clippers on them. They've got this nice little cover on them, but they're a giant foam pad. Anyway, uh, Austin Rivers punches a seat, grabs one of these seat cushions, and literally flings it into the stance. Now, that happens. I mean, things like this happen. I, I know, I mean, I was sitting there one time when someone, I can't remember who it was, threw a mouth guard into the stands and the guy like right in front of us caught it and was like holding it up. Like, yes, I've got someone's mouth guard that's slimy and gross. They just took out of their mouth and I'm not giving it back. This is my mouth guard now. Um, but that was not this situation. Uh, Austin Rivers, in a fit of rage, punched a chair through a seat cushion into the stands. He did not, like, I, I don't believe this was maliciously him, like, planning out who he was going to hit in the stands or anything. He lost his cool, and he did something egregious. Uh, have you seen the footage, Aaron? Yeah, I have. And it's it's your standard athlete doesn't know what he's doing, but he does it and then he's gonna get in trouble for it afterwards thing it kind of reminded Which, me of like seinfeld when keith uh hernandez spit on on uh yes cosmo kramer yes. and you know you know back into the left it was a full facial shot to the woman her whole head jerked back 
the video of it, it, it's violent. And it's not violent because he took a sledgehammer to someone's head. It's violent because she didn't see it coming and all of a sudden this giant, I, I don't even think, the thing probably weighs a pound. Anyway, it blasts her in the face. That's why it's like shocking, right? I mean, you saw her head jerk back. I mean, we're talking it, like she could have whiplash. My honest thought on this is that the NBA does, they want this story to go away. They do. So they know that the Players Association knows that. And the Players Association is like, well, we're going to fight for anything. And I mean, we could have the guilty person doing God knows what. And we're going to still appeal on nine out of 10 things that you give. But on this particular thing, the league knows that if they give a little slap on the wrist, that the the, the union's going to say, well, we want this to go away too, so we're not going to argue about it either. And that's that. And that's that's really where we're at with these suspensions because, frankly, I don't care if you're in high school or college or in any other area of, of work other than NBA basketball player. If you get angry and you fling something and you don't know where you're flinging it and then that hits somebody in the face – you're probably going to get penalized for that. And more so than like one one thousandth or one ten thousandth of your salary or whatever Austin Rivers makes. Yeah. So that to me, it's it's unfortunate because if I'm an NBA fan, I'm like, well, what the hell? Like, you know, I paid to be here and you're you have a little kid that's throwing a temper tantrum and can't stop himself from throwing things into my face like so that's where I, I, I think it's a bad move by the NBA. I think they should have suspended him for a game, and then story ends, and that's that. Okay, so let me tell you why I became slightly part of the story. And not really, but I watch this happen. and But I watch it happen from like six feet away. I mean, this was... I'm at the tall table. Maybe he was aiming at... Did you think for a second he could have been aiming at you? He almost hit Sam Amick in the back of the head. He did. Sam was uh, right to my right. He almost hit Sam in the back of the head. And then it probably would have been really funny, and we all would we all would have laughed about it. And Wait, well, he, if he hit Sam Amick, there, there would have been a five-game suspension. I, I don't, you know, Sam has clout. I'm going to give you that he has clout, but I don't think, I think it would have been funny. Everyone would have been like, ha, 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 ha. But here's the deal. This is why, again, I, I say that I don't want to be part of the story, but I am slightly. Because... I look back and the girl's not okay. And it's not like she's bleeding profusely and she's like not going to make it. But she got smacked right in both of her eyes. It, it, the, the impact actually blew one of her contacts out of her eye. She can't find her contact. Her eyes are watering all over the place. And this is like two or three minutes after it happened. She's literally, it's just like, streaming out the side. She's not crying. Her eyes are watering all over the place. I said, hey, is she okay? And the people around her said, hey, I think she needs ice or something. Uh, and so I grab an usher and I'm like, hey, dude, one of the Clippers, and at this point, I don't know who it is because I had looked at the bench, but there were a few Clippers in the area. I didn't know if it was Paul Pierce or if it was if it was Austin Rivers or maybe one other player that were that was in that vicinity. So I didn't really know who it was. But I, I called the usher that's sitting right next to us. I'm like, hey, one of the Clippers just threw something in the stands and hit this woman in the face. And he's like, are you kidding me? I'm like, no. And he's like, I, I said, I think she needs medical attention. And so he stands up on the edge and he's like, do you need help? And, I mean, the lady's streaming and I, she shakes her head yes. And they call for medical attention and she comes over. Now, look, again, she's not bleeding. She's not dead. 
Uh, nothing like absolutely tremendous happened here. But number, this is a season ticket holder, number one. Uh, she had no idea it was a timeout. There's no, like, it's not like you caught a foul ball between the eyes because you weren't paying attention, Rivercats fans. Um, it, it's not like that happened. This was something out of the norm, out of the okay. And this is where, you know, they came, they took care of her. They, uh, she had to be helped off the court after the game. Again, she never found her contact lens. I actually found it on the seat afterwards, but she never found her contact lens. If she, you need your contact lens back. It, it, it was dried him. up by that point. It was dried up and, and rolled up into a ball by that point. But again, she couldn't see because she had one contact lens in and one not. And I don't, I've never worn contacts, but I guess that's a bad thing. Um, she had to be helped off the court after the game. There was a full report done and all that stuff. Again, the whole time, she thought she knew exactly who did it. She said it was Austin Rivers. But I wasn't going to go with that 100% because I needed to see the footage of who did it. Now I've seen the footage. It was Austin Rivers. Uh, he got fined. He, you deserve it. Now here's here's where I'm like a bit put off, Aaron. Number one. Austin Rivers, in quotes to ESPN, I looked into this stance and said, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. I apologized. No, he did not. Actually, the footage shows him drop a couple of F-bombs while he's standing there on the sidelines, uh, while he's, again, enraged and not part of the program. He had no idea that he actually hit somebody in the stance. I don't even think he knew that he threw that thing as far as he did. Number two, he was not throwing it over the first row of seats back to the second row. This was a 20 to 25 foot shot into the crowd. This was, it was not a woman like eight feet away from him. He shot it over the first two rows of seats up into the elevated lower deck to a lady in the second row. It was at least 20 or 25 feet before it made impact, this thing was hurled like somebody out on disc golf course. So that's my second thing. Uh, there was no intent to injure, but there it was more than like I was trying to get the seat cushion out of my way. Secondly, Doc Rivers, his father, made light of it so so like egregiously, like oh I, I'm so embarrassed of my son, ha 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 ha, you know. And realistically, he should be embarrassed because what his son did was not in the norm. It was not okay. A season ticket holder that probably, I, I haven't done the math, but those are probably $160 seats plus. So I, I'm going to guess that she's into it for seven, eight grand on the season. She didn't deserve that at all. And to me, I, I was really taken aback by the entire process and the way that the Clippers responded the next day, ha, 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 a lady was injured during the game because, you know, realistically, my son is immature, can't control himself, and threw something into the stands that he never should have done. Again, I would have liked to have seen a one or two game suspension, $25,000 fine, plus his game checks, because don't do it again. No one else do it again, because that's not okay. So that's my rant. Yeah, yeah I mean, he looks like a baby, and... I mean, I feel bad for him. He needs to figure it out. So, yeah, I'm right. I'm right there with you. It, it's ridiculous, and uh, he's lucky. And they shouldn't be going out with the narrative on national TV that he actually did something to, you know, apologize to the lady. They, like he handled it with class. Like, oh, I realize I made a mistake, and you know, I, I rectified my mistake. No, you handled handled it like a baby would handle it. And 
then you had, you know, daddy and the team, you know, cover your tracks. So, yeah, and I'm not sure if he actually spoke to the woman well after the game, but he certainly didn't speak to her right after the game. He did not know that he injured someone. There's no question in my mind he did not know. When he left the floor, he did not know he injured someone. Maybe after the game, someone came back and said, hey, look, you need to go back out there. She's still there, and you need to say you're sorry. And and that's possible. And he may have apologized. Maybe he'll have a teachable moment out of it. Who knows? I guess. I guess. Okay, so let's move on. Um, let's move on to, to all of our other things, but I mean, you get my point like that to me, that's not okay. And I don't like being in that situation. It wasn't fun to be in. And especially like people are like, why aren't you telling us who it is? And it's like, well, I'm not telling you who it is because I'm not, I'm not quite sure who it is. It's one of like two or three people and I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to put that out there. Okay. So moving on, um, Willie Cauley Stein, this is the great mystery of the opener. Uh, George Carl decided not to start Willie Cauley-Stein because he didn't want him to be indoctrinated into the NBA against Blake Griffin and get his butt kicked. Instead, he would prefer that Costa Kufos and DeMarcus Cousins started the season against Blake Griffin and got their butts kicked. Am I wrong? I'm, I'm medium on this because there was a point in time during the game where I felt like George Carl should have switched and brought Willie Cauley-Stein in, and he didn't. And the only reason I'm not you know, I guess like a hundred percent on, on being against what he did is that Costa Kufos was just giving tremendous minutes. And yes, Blake Griffin was eating him alive at times, but there's no guarantee that he's not going to do the same thing to Willie Cauley Stein. I just thought that Carl would have benefited from using Willie Cauley Stein as a changeup of sorts to give him different looks. And it was clear that for this particular game, not only did George Carl want the win very badly, he was going to lean on some veterans. You notice Karan Butler played, but he doesn't fully trust Willie Cauley-Stein, and, and that's okay. That's fine. I mean, he's only been you know playing for the guy for a month or so. So, I mean, none of that, that really bothers me from a long-term perspective, and I do think we'll see a, a lot of Willie Cauley-Stein against the Lakers. So it's just, you know, you, you kind of second-guess yourself if you're a coach, and you kind of second-guess yourself, or you just kind of second-guess the coach on certain things, this is definitely one of those things where I think he'll wake up or already has wake woken up and is like, yeah, you know what? I could have thrown him in there for five minutes and I probably should have done it. Yeah, actually, I, talking to George Carl today at practice, that is the overall sentiment that I got. Like, I got caught in a moment. I didn't want to have a kid get embarrassed, especially against a, a guy who's like just killing us at that point. And so he decided to err on the side of caution Bring Co- it was in the third quarter where you really saw that the Kings needed Cauley Stein, and he went back to, to Kufos, and you're like, okay, I'm confused. And again, this is nothing against Kufos. It, it, to me, you and, and can't what, start two centers. You can't start what, two centers. Well, I against, like against Kufos, this team. I liked what Kufos did a lot in that game, and even in the realm of like, I think that they can stick with the two-center thing, so we might differ on that. But going back to the film of this game, a lot of this stuff was holistic issues with the defense. And so I could see also where Carl might in real time, you know, he can process this stuff a whole lot faster than anybody else can. But you see, uh, you know, there's guys that struggled with their assignments across the board. And so like, you know, Griffin is a very different power forward. He almost operates like a guard out there. They run guard-like plays for him. So there's a lot of screens that he comes off of, and there's a lot of switching. And the guards wouldn't switch on to Griffin when they were supposed to switch on to Griffin. 
And so I would say maybe half of what we saw that might look like it could be Blake Griffin eating up Costa Cufos was actually attributable to a guard or a, or a small forward that didn't get the assignment the right way or a rotation somewhere else didn't work. And in particular, just the little dump off pass to Blake Griffin at the elbow was wide open all game long. And you heard it in the post game; They were scheming to give up the mid range shot. And this is a part of that whole analytics uh, movement that can backfire is sometimes guys are really good at mid range shots and you give them a couple mid range shots that they make, they get into a rhythm it impacts other areas of their game. So I, I don't have a problem with scheming for that sort of thing. But in this particular case, that dump off pass off the screen and roll to Blake Griffin at the elbow was wide open all all game long. And I think looking back, that's something you want to take away from him. Yeah. Okay. So let's, let's clarify here. Um, George Carl was very specific. He said that we were going to attempt to take away the three point shot, especially uh, JJ Redick on the three point shot. So they were rotating and, and making sure that someone always had Redick off of, off of his cuts, off of his screens. Uh, number two, they were going to take away the lob, and the lob was really ineffective the entire game until one big, huge dunk late in the game, which actually ended up being really big. And they were going to give the Clippers all of the mid-range jump shots that they can possibly want. And again, we've talked about this in the past, sort of the dribble drive motion offense. It It's really based off of the fact that a shot at the rim is worth 1.2 points per possession because your shot at the rim is basically a 60% shot and you get 60% for each of those one points. So point, uh, so 1.2 is what a shot at the rim is typically good for. A three-point shot from the corner, again, if it's a 40% make, then it's worth 1.2 points. And those are really efficient shots in the NBA game. And then if you look at jump shooting, uh, most jump shots are worth basically between point like seven and point eight five per possession because the a jump shot in the NBA is really, really a low percentage shot. It's between 35, maybe 40% on a jump shot. doesn't matter who's taking it. And so basically, if you're scoring 1.2 points on every possession and then your opponent is scoring 0.8 shots, 0.8 of a point on every possession, then you're pulling away by 0.4 of a shot every single time down the court Every three possessions, you're at 1.2. Every five possessions, you're up two points. And that's how you start to slowly, incrementally pull away from a team. So to make a a small, you know, a large, confusing thing into like a, you know, two-minute explanation, that's why the Kings were trying to take away the three-pointer and the dunk and give away Blake Griffin and all of these mid-range jump shots and, and what and, and then what 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 did Blake Griffin and Chris Paul do all night long lit <laughs> them up from the mid-range <laughs> but it's a safe bet right i, I mean i understand no, it's the not. concept it, no no i i'm just so against this because every, all that makes sense in a vacuum like and it's completely smart to set your offense up for three-pointers and dunks but the context behind that if everybody could just shoot three-pointers and dunk every single time down the court they would you know, but they can't, you know, you have to have a reason to give up a three pointer. You have to have a reason to give up a dunk. And that's the offensive challenge. So if you say you're going to shade the, 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 in this case, what they did and, and they executed it, I guess, to a certain degree, because you did see a lot of mid range shots and the Clippers just made them. 
But if you're going to give a wide open shots every single time, you're you're going to see these types of results. And yes, if you know, like in a, in a perfect world, the percentages for dunks are great. But you know what? If, if you're actually unable to secure dunks or secure close range shots that go in, what that tr- what that looks like is a bad offense. That that's a that's an offense that you know, like the Philadelphia 76ers or you know the Kings when they struggle. That's what it looks like. So it's kind of cherry picking stats to say that you can get in and get that effective two point shot at will, or you can get the three point shot at will. You have to have somebody that can force the issue, and then you have to give up something. And in this case, what the Kings gave up were those wide open looks and. Anytime you can get into rhythm as an offensive player, that, that there's an unknown mathematical bump that you get from that because you're shooting with more confidence and you're hitting more shots. Nobody knows how to articulate that in the form of a mathematical equation. Or actually, they probably do. But it's not quite as simple as everybody else makes it out to be. So I'm not completely on board with it. But if you want to trend toward doing that, I'm fine with it. Okay, so here's my rebuttal. Uh, I watched... George Carl and the Denver Nuggets, uh, I think it was three seasons ago, Carl's last season in Denver, where they won 57 wins and they were one of the worst three-point shooting teams. They didn't take three-pointers. They didn't make three-pointers. I watched them one night against the Kings. I think they scored 94 of their like 102 points in the paint. And they did it without a single major low post player. Kufos at that time was not a a back to the basket guy. Uh, Kenneth Fareed, uh, they, all they did was score at the rim, and, and so that's number one. So George Carl has been able to do that, and when you shoot that high of percentage, you're going to dominate. You're going to blow somebody out. I mean, they're, if you're going to score 94 points in the paint against anybody in the league, you're going to win by 20 or 25 points, guaranteed. Okay, but. but- Look at the personnel, though. Look at who he had on that squad. They're all guys that can get to the rim. And I've been, I've said this on this podcast a million times, penetration kills. Like, if there's something in the NBA that is not valued that should be valued, it's guys getting past their defender, breaking down the defense, and getting those three-point looks to actually open up or getting the help defender to come over to free up the offensive glass. That stuff is is absolutely, you know, invaluable, yet you see criticism for guys that dribble the basketball and drive when in reality you can't quantify what they just did for the offense but on that particular Denver team I mean you had some serious guys that could get to the rim and of course that's going to help matters yeah and I'm not I'm not going to argue that team versus this team I'm just going to tell you that yes the Kings do have serious guys that can get to the basket uh, on this team and they also have guys who can shoot an extremely high percentage around the basket and and I mean that to me the hallmark of this Kings team is really going to be those those points in the paint and you know so so in this game the Kings won the points in the the paint battle 48 to 36 if you if you typically if you give up 36 points in the paint to a it doesn't matter how good the team is you're usually going to win when you outscore them by 12 points in the paint just because the percentages are so much higher here's the other argument that I'm going to make uh last year at the rim, Blake Griffin shot 71.5% from the field. He's unstoppable. So every time he's shooting at the rim, his points per possession are worth 1.42 points. Uh, 
almost 1.4. It's 1.43 points. That's huge. Uh, from 3 to 10 feet, he shot 38%. From 10 to 16 feet, he shot 38.5%. From 16 to 3-point range, he shot 40.7%. Again, the idea behind this was not bad. A- and I won't even say the execution was bad. I think that that is a huge reason why you saw the Kings stick around in this game because the actual plan itself was good. Easy baskets didn't happen. Wide open threes didn't happen except for those first couple by Lance Stevenson, which were kind of an abnormality. But I think it was sound. I think the idea was sound. I think the execution was okay. I think that you had a starting unit that came out flat and turned the ball over too much. And I think 18 turnovers are going to beat you. And when you're running an 18-second shot clock all through training camp and then you turn the ball over with 24-second shot clocks twice in the first five minutes, um, you've kind of failed yourself. But uh, I I do believe that the idea was sound and the execution was sound. It just didn't work out this time. I'll I'll, I'll leave it at this. I'm fine with the plan. I think it's a good plan. But if you – it's not a lockdown. It's not like a lock. It's not something that you can say with certainty you should do every single time. And if you if you make that your plan and then they kill you on the thing that's going to kill you, you know, the known weakness of that plan, then I think it's probably fair to say some other alternatives should be looked at for the next time. You know, so that's as far as I would push my, you know, critical analysis of it um, the, or maybe just change it in game. And that could be it. That's a thing with this team. You know, we see. Willie Cauley-Stein not getting in. This is the first night of the season. Coaches are not real – they don't like change in the first place, but on on night one, you're not going to see a lot of reactive changes by a Hall of Fame coach, you know, in his whatever season. He's just not going to be very reactive about it. So I get it on all fronts. You just – you know, you made that your plan. You go with it. But maybe if, you know, we're talking game 60 and that's your plan and you're getting killed in the mid-range, I think you change it up. Yeah. Okay. So let me, I'm just going to say one thing. Uh, I, I love using these things. I used to work with this guy who, who like spoke in cliches and, and had all of these funny little things that he said, uh, failing to plan is planning to fail. And for the first time in a long time, I actually think the Kings walked in with a game plan and it didn't work, but it was a game plan and, uh, not out, outside of Michael Malone. I think Michael Malone game planned well, I think the Kings have had a lack of game planning for for a while. Uh, so so let's move on to the next the next topic, and uh, we've got a lot of them. And I think this is one that that you know there's there's one guy on Twitter. I, I you know for the life of me, I don't even know who he is. Um, he's got some random thing, and he's clearly a Darren Collison disciple. And I, I'm not sure who he is. I don't know if he's a friend or if he's some random guy or whatever, but he hits me all the time and he's beating me down. You're beating me down. If I knew your Twitter handle name, you're beating me down uh, about this whole issue of Darren Coulson versus uh, Rajon Rondo as a starting point guard. And I am of the opinion that I want to allow Rondo to try to put his stamp on this team early on as a starter as a starter and Darren Collison to put his stamp on this team as a bench guy but I'm also you know cognizant of the fact that one of these guys is playing out of his mind and the other statistically speaking 
whether you look at plus minus, whether you look at, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of different things you can look at, a lot of different ratings and stuff like that. One guy is not, and one guy is. One guy is playing out of his mind statistically. The other one is really struggling. Um, where are you at with the Rondo Collison battle? Well, your earlier question about how the Kings got back in it, it was Darren Collison. And the where I'm at with it is this, is it's way too early for anybody to be panicking about any one thing. And if you're jumping on any one trend line, I mean, other than if you see a guy, he looks out of shape and then maybe he is out of shape or you see a guy and he looks like he's in tremendous shape. Maybe he is in tremendous shape. But as far as like one game determining outlooks, I'm, I'm really sensitive to not going there. But I will say this, the tape was not pretty for Rondo last night. He's hurting the team in multiple ways, but he's also still, it's it's a give and take with Rondo at this stage in his career because there's certain things that he does really well. Um, defensively, I don't think that would be a focus of my attention at all if I'm trying to, you know, quote, fix Rondo or talk about Rondo. Like, I think he's going to be fine in that area for the Kings. So we're really just talking about offense. And there, you, you when he's operating, when he's on in a half court, the Kings offense is bogged down and his guy is an instant double on whoever, mostly DeMarcus Cousins. Um, they're sagging. They're going under screens. There's just no passing angles. And so I think if you're George Carl and you're just completely intent on starting Rajon Rondo and you know, say he doesn't, you know, f- figure out a way around this because he's going to have to find a way to make the defense pay. And he's not close to that. And it's something that his teammates are going to have to help him out with as well. They're going to have to run different sets that are really specialized in opening up the floor. So like super high pick and rolls, you know, things that that get him the ball with a head of steam, keep guys out of his space. And yes, you know, Andrew Bogut gets this treatment Tony Allen gets this treatment, but Andrew Bogan's a good passer, so he's a better comparison. If the guy wants to sag off a lot, you can actually make a defense pay, not by shooting, but by having better passing lanes to pass. But there was like three guys in his space, and when Chris Paul's sinking down to basically defend the entry pass, that's just not going to work. And so what my thoughts are is if you give him five to ten games and it doesn't start to pan out. I think that's really the timer that you want to look at because I think the writing on the wall is that he's better off in the second unit where he can have a lower brand of competition. He can, I mean, these guys won't be quite as in tune with what the the book on Rondo is. And I think he can start to be exploitive of those second units, put his stamp on that particular unit and really, keep the the damage from his offensive limitations down to a minimum so but this is a big departure from this is our leader this is our point guard this is the guy that's running the show all that stuff as long as he can keep it kind of um in check i think that stuff is fine but if you're saying this is our team leader our general on the floor and everybody in the room knows that it, that, that Darren Collison's a better fit and a better producer and a better starter that's going to start eating at the team. So I think George Carl gets it. You see that Rajon Rondo's minutes are nowhere near what a lot of people thought they would be. I don't see that changing. If anything, they're going down. But he has to be paired next to shooters. And he needs to be 
there needs to be a distinctive plan that's different when he's on the floor because if if the plan involves him dumping the ball down to De- to DeMarcus Cousins that's not going to work because his man blew up DeMarcus Cousins at least 5 times and I'm not even fully done watching the film. Okay. Um I agree with ev- everything you said except for I'm more of the we should probably give this 20 games. The Kings first like 8 games is stretch is I, like brutal. I would be I would not not to jump all over you but I would be there if they weren't in such a tough conference. Yeah, but you're going to have that run of Eastern Conference teams is going to balance this thing out, and I think you have to give it a little bit of time. And this is why. Like, I'm not a... uh, Rondo is going to be a five, six, seven-time All-Star and is about to land like a $15 million a year deal from the Kings this offseason. That's not where I'm at. I think that Rondo is still a very intelligent player, but I also know that where he's going to excel is as a leader, uh, especially on the defensive side. He has his team talking more. He has them understanding more. He's working with Ben McLemore to you know figure out where to be open and where not to be open. And, and you know I think that there's a way that you can hold out a little bit longer and say. Can he do it? Because I think if you put him with the second unit, then this whole thing kind of, he as a player kind of spins out. And it's like, uh, where are you going to go from here? Now, he'll try to take it like a pro, but at the same time, you know, Collison has taken it like a pro for the most part. And, you know, he's a guy that, I, I mean, he can do either. He can start or he can come off the bench. Rondo is not a guy who can start or come off the bench. He He is a starter. Yeah, I, I mean, there comes a point in time when Michael Jordan sucked at basketball, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I mean, everybody's got to re- face the music at some point in time that their role, you know, might change. One creative thing that I was thinking of that the Kings could do, because Rondo is very, he's got great vision. And right now, when he's in the half court, he doesn't get a chance to use that vision because there's no passing lanes one thing the Kings could really look to do is take the ball out of his hands in the half court set and really let Rudy Gay operate with it, find other other ways to to make that happen. But let Rondo be the guy that pushes the pace and say to Rondo, hey, Rondo, we're, it's not working in the half court set. We're going to push. You, you, you get the ball every time you can and push. And if you see it, you take it. If it's there, you go with it. But after that, it's not your show. Now, we know that that's probably not going to go over well, but that's the reality of how to optimize that offense because it's going to get real ugly with if if the league it's like a, it's a blood in the water league. So if they look at tape of the Clippers game and they see that Chris Paul ignoring Rondo on almost every play and, and making DeMarcus Cousins life hell on the post. They're just gonna keep. Do, they're just gonna keep coming at it. So if if you do twenty games of it, you know normally I'd be fine with it, but this that's a quarter of the season, man, and I, it's gonna take forty seven wins to get into the playoffs. Something in that ballpark. The Kings don't have a lot of room for error. So okay, I agree with all of that. And actually, it, this is gonna segue right into what our next point was. And our next point is, whose responsibility is it to get Ben Mclemore started? And uh, the reason I bring this up right now is because, in all honesty, you can blame all kind. You can blame Rondo for all kinds of things, but 
Darren Collison gets to run out there with Marco Bellinelli. And you yeah. have to respect Marco Bellinelli from 35 feet out. I mean, Marco Bellinelli can flat out shoot it. And not only can he shoot it, but again, it's uh, Marco Greenlight Bellinelli. I mean, this he guy wants has to green. shoot it. He does. Yeah. And so my point is, can you blame Rondo for the defense collapsing on Cousins when it might be the fact that Ben McLemore isn't ready to contribute this season or early in this season for the Sacramento Kings? Can you bench Ben McLemore without breaking his spirit? Can James Anderson give you an upgrade at all? Is the real answer Marco Bellinelli as a starter? I mean, these are things that are going to have to happen very quickly. And so I'm not willing to say Rondo is a failure at eight games if he hasn't done this when I know that he's, you know, he's basically, he's in a one-legged ass-kicking contest. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't work. It doesn't work when Ben McLemore is not ready to play. Your concerns are well-founded. The tape is not showing Macklemore as an issue with that particular thing, but it's going to be a problem. And there, there's, I'm not, like I said, I'm not all the way done with it, but I'm sure if I look real hard, I can find ways that Ben's defender is cheating and getting in on the action in a way that doesn't help the team because Ben right now has no confidence whatsoever. And it's to the point where he needs to take a different approach to the game and that is going to be either saying F it or like really backing off and honing on his craft to the point where he does have the confidence to do what he needs to do. He looks lost out there and he kind of it's like you could hear the voice in his head saying, be confident, take the shot, take the shot, take the shot. And so he goes and he takes a bad shot or the shot is there and he like there was one where he came curling off the screen for a three and instead of just going right up with it he had to take a little security dribble that stuff's just not going to fly anymore and i think you you have to at some point change the way that you approach it coddling so to speak you know not wanting to to yank him for for sake of breaking that confidence is you know maybe there's like a five game window on that um, but I think at some point in time, you've got to just make the switch. If anything to say to Ben Macklemore, Hey, it's a make or miss league. Like it's, it's at some point in time incumbent upon you to say, I'm either going to do it or I'm not. And all the hard work, all the being a good locker room guy, everything that's associated with that, that's all good and fine, but it's going to get, it's, you can't have, Rajon Rondo and Ben McLemore out there with your starting unit and not expect to get in a 10-point hole. And that's what's ended up happening right now with the Kings. So, And if you add Willie Cauley-Stein to the starting lineup? Well, absolutely. I mean, that you're, compounds you're, it even further. I'm sure these are, and like I said, I think I tweeted this during the game. It's like George Carl has some very difficult playing time decisions that he has to figure out. And that would be another reason I'd look at bringing Rondo off the bench because if you bring Collison into that first unit, then all of a sudden Ben's not such a liability because you have a dynamic offensive player that can balance that out and you can bring in. I mean, if you've got Collison, Rudy, and Demarcus, you can live with Ben and Willie Cauley-Stein in the other two slots. You're perfectly fine there. Or if you have Rondo and Bellinelli in the backcourt, you can live with Rondo and Cauley Stein being the non-offensive weapons. 
I think this is, it really comes down to the old, the original Batman again. If you mix the lipstick with the eyeliner, then you'll, you'll die. If you mix deodorant with shampoo, you know, this is like the Joker's gas spell he put out there. Um, the Kings really have to figure out these finer nuance, you know, issues that they have. How do I mix this particular group? And I think it's a very difficult thing because, again, what might be the right answer, which Kings fans can burn me at the stake for this statement right now, the right answer might be to hope that the New York Knicks fail and by December 15th they're, like, on the skids and you take Ben McLemore and you throw in something else and you try to get Aaron Aflalo. And you try to go... Uh, yeah. On its last legs. He dude. is, but that doesn't mean that watch. he's not a threat <laughs> at the two-guard position where Ben McLemore isn't. It, it doesn't matter how athletic he is. It doesn't matter any of those things. All that matters is that he can sit there and people have to guard him where right now I don't think they have to guard Ben McLemore. I, I, I wouldn't guard a flawless. Like, seriously, I'm, I'm just, I'm, a flawless is not the answer for these guys. They are, I mean, a flawless, if he can ever get his hamstring right, he's got to get back on the court and prove that he can actually just get open and, and make shot. But I mean, we, we you understand we're, we're what I'm saying. You understand. What I understand what you, you, you have to find somebody player like that. into that yeah. equation and figure yeah. it out. And. The thing, the reason why you want Ben in the starting lineup, though, is because you don't want Marco Bellini, Bellinelli covering top line twos. It's not a great, I mean, yeah, he can do it in spurts. His defense is a little bit understated, but you just don't want that, you know, Clay Thompson, James Harden. You know, the list goes on and on of quality two guards in this league. You, you want Marco Bellinelli coming off the bench where his offense is, is appreciated and warranted. If you're saying, okay, now we got to bring Marco Bellinelli because Ben's not effective, it really takes away what Marco Bellinelli is perfect for and then moves him into kind of a place he's miscast. So for Ben, I think the pre- he needs to feel a little bit of the pressure and maybe he needs to, to break a little. Like maybe he needs to actually feel the pain of failure and and decide, you know what, I don't like this feeling anymore. I'm going to go out there. I'm going to pick my spots. I'm going to be very intuitive about how I play. I'm going to maybe talk back to some of these veterans a little bit and and really earn my spot on the court rather than having it just be kind of bequeathed to him. I I agree. I mean, I I really, this is such a dilemma. And what you don't want to do if you're the Kings is go all in on veterans and have no future. Ben McLemore is supposed to be your future, one of your future pieces. And, And I'm not like mass panic on Ben. But I just know that something's something's coming. It's it's got to give at some point. And maybe the answer really is even inserting James Anderson and playing Bellinelli thirty minutes tonight off the bench. And whoever's playing that position is playing very sparingly. But you know they're Absolutely. coming in and they're banging threes and they're locking down defense when they're in the game. And when they're not in the game. Uh, you got somebody who's coming in and completely changing the dynamic of the team. So we're going to have a lot more discussions on this as time goes by. Again, it's one game, and I don't want to get people panicked over one game. I will say that Ben McLemore played much better in the second half, and he played better when the light bulb came on and he said, wait a sec, no one's going to pass to me. I'm going to have to go steal the ball from somebody and go dunk if I want to score at all. He scored zero (laughs) points in the first half. Um, and that is the moment where Ben McLemore seemed to have some sort of epiphany. Uh, the epiphanies have to keep on coming, though. 
and especially on the defensive land end. But, you know, he ended up with five points. Uh, that's not going to cut it, especially when he doesn't have a single rebound, a single assist. He had one steal. Uh, you know, he really was, he had a negative 14 for the game, which led the Kings in, in the plus minus. And, you know, again, it's not plus minus. You can't look at one game and just like circle it and say that's, he's horrible. He's negative 14. Um, but you understand what I'm saying. I mean, he has to do more. And unfortunately, I don't know that he's ready to do more. I, I do know that Karam Butler is, is 300 years old. And, you know, he scored eight points and, and grabbed two rebounds and, and had a steal, and he was a threat. And if you have to rely on a 35-year-old Karam Butler to steal minutes at the two, again, I, that's, that's a disappointment. It's a disappointment. So, but that's why you got him for. And, and he did his job last night or the other night for people listening to this later in the week. And, and I would say, last thing on Ben, I'd like to see him, if, you know, if you're listening, Ben, which I, I know you totally are, is uh, watch some tape on TJ Warren out of Phoenix. He's a second-year guy. He's just amazing cutting off the ball. And that is, I think, Ben's role in this offense. He can park it in the corner all he wants, get the open threes that he gets. It's going to be an up-and-down year for him living at the three-point line. But if he can figure out a way to cut off the ball in the creative ways that TJ Warren does, then I think he can have a very good season. I... I would like to see the Kings just, again, this is kind of out of left field. I would really like to see them reach out to uh, my fellow CSN uh, Bay Area, uh, .com, CSN, you know, California employee, uh, my fellow my fellow co-worker, Doug Christie, and say, Doug, can, can you actually, you know, work with this kid and teach him at least to be defensive-minded, to stay in front, at least to start looking for the holes. Get him on the right path, because as of right now, I think the Kings still have too much competition for minutes, and when you have competition for minutes, that typically means that while someone is helping you, they're not helping you 100%, because they know that if they're helping you, that could mean less for them. And so that, you know, competition is a good thing, but it also breeds that extra layer of, are we really helping? Are we really? I mean, Rondo, Rondo, yes, Rondo is helping, like, but is like I help the young guy. I lost my job. What it, happened? Is everybody else saying I really want that number seven pick to get it right, and so he can have all the minutes at the two guard, and I have none? And I think the answer is no. That's probably not fully happening. Okay, so so let's get to our final topic. Our final topic. Uh, we're gonna skip the Lakers because. Um, as long as the Kings aren't looking past them, they're going to roll over them. I, I can only imagine. Oh, no, no, <sighs> uh-uh, Aaron. no, no, but we can, uh, it's a big game and the Kings need to, to win it, obviously. Yes. <laughs> but it's not, that's not a cakewalk and well, too bad there's not another podcast for that, but it's not a cakewalk. I think the Kings will win, but they got their work cut out for them. I was especially uh, enamored with the 51 rebounds in, in op- on opening night by the Lakers. But again, I'm going to point out they were playing the Kobe rebounds. <laughs> they were playing against, yeah, yeah. Everyone, I mean, everyone gets a an extra couple when Kobe's shooting. Um, but they were playing the T Wolves on opening night, so so I, I'm not going to give them much, especially when you're going up against sort of a seasoned veteran team. Again, the point guard position there is it's a work in progress, but. Uh, the Kings point guards are going to eat, eat those guys alive. Uh, Lou Williams will come in and score a ton. 
and you got to look out for sort of those lightning in a bottle guys. But overall, I think the Kings are in pretty, uh, they're pretty safe ground. I don't know what the spread is, but I got the Kings winning and I'll take the Lakers with the, the points. I think the spread is seven. Okay, I'll take the seven. You'll take the seven? Uh, Kings yeah. by seven. Kings by seven. Okay, so yeah. last topic. And we got to make this sort of brief because we are running long here on the CSN Kings Insider podcast. Um, I hate, I hate him. I really do. I hate him. <laughs> Is it all right for DeMarcus Cousins to play the game of basketball fueled by hatred? Yes. It is. He just has to channel it. He has to harness it. And that's going to be his challenge in basketball. He has to figure out what the what the fine line is that many great athletes before him have struggled to find and then ride that edge. It's like surfing. You should take up surfing. Boogie, if you're listening, take up surfing, my friend. You you will enjoy figuring out where the edge is. But but really, I mean You don't think he's gonna Luke Longley it? <laughs> I don't know what Luke did on a surf. Did he do something crazy on a he surf? Did he go like himself during their championship? Did he go to Jeez. But that's yeah. the fun of it. I've almost killed myself surfing. It's great, you know. He you missed. Uh, and... He missed. I think an entire season with a completely shattered collarbone. He almost broke his neck. He almost died. Oh man! Don't you remember that? Yeah. Longley Bulls. Well, maybe I, maybe you shouldn't take my advice to Marcus. But no, his. I mean, you can't buy rage and and anger and that kind of just pure will to win. You can't buy that in a lot of players, and so you just hope that it can be cultivated. And I will say this, after the game, there was a calm and centered DeMarcus Cousins. You know, for the part that was on the camera, I know there was some stuff that went on in the background afterwards. Somebody asked a weird question or something. But, like, for the most part, he showed a lot of perspective. And, you know, the fear would be that, you know, it's the Clippers and he's pissed. And, you know, he did say that he really, really hates them, which was perfect. Um, But I think that... He came across like somebody that has taken a step forward in the growth department, and yeah, that's all you want. That's what you want to see on a nightly basis is that he can come off the court, and it's not life or death. It's very important, but you know there's perspective involved, and he did that that night. Cultivate and perspective in the same, the same little shot there. Okay, so I'm going to say this. The same hatred that allows DeMarcus Cousins to score 32 points and 13 rebounds on opening night, it's the same exact hatred that gets him eight turnovers and six personal fouls. Somehow he has to find a balance, and I hope he does because what he can do on a court is so next level. It's so generational talent. It's so incredible to watch on a nightly basis. It's, it, again, you're we're gifted the the opportunity to watch someone this talented because they don't come around that often like this and i hope that there's a moment where he can he can find some joy on the court because i think he does find joy off the court on the court uh man i don't know yeah can you live that way all the time and, and man when he's angry and he's going at it it's crazy but you know he took a lot of bad shots he took he he made a bunch of bad fouls he 
he had a bunch of t- bad turnovers, and the the referee certainly helped. And I'm not going to say that they didn't. I'd say maybe four or five of those those turnovers, those eight turnovers, he was actually fouled. But you know, when you I, like hatred permeates through you, I don't think you're going to get fouls. I don't. I, you're not going to get the benefit of, of the doubt. And I hope that he finds that that thing because, and could you imagine like not having your A game going up against one of the most talented teams in the league? Doesn't DeAndre Jordan, isn't he like a defensive player of the year type player? Um, and to destroy them for 32 points and 13 rebounds in 35 minutes and foul out and, you know, and you could have done so much more if you wouldn't have turned the ball over. I mean, we, we're not even close to Pete Cousins yet. We're not. That's the, that's the yeah. close. That's the crazy thing about this. Is we're not even close. Like he's at a C game right now. He's got a B game and then an A game. And it just it takes some guys longer to figure out that balance than others. And it's I just you I'd much rather have Cousins and it, and him caring than some guy that you know like Prince Valium. You know, Billy Owens. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Every coach has said it. Every coach that I've ever, every NBA coach, it's so much easier to try to tone somebody down than to try to bring them up. If if you've got someone with fire, God bless them. Uh, let me work with them. If you got someone who doesn't have fire, it's almost impossible to fix, and you might as well just move on. So, so there is that. So, hey, I, and I'm not, and I'm not burying the guy, and I'm not saying anything negative about him. I just, you know. He he's the one who who used the term hate, and and I don't think he was joking at all. I think he does hate those guys. Well, who doesn't Who doesn't hate the Clippers, man? <laughs> hey, Twitter, Twitter <laughs> hates hates the Clippers because I know of the uh, nearly seven hundred retweets and favorites from you know that quote. Uh, from every I, NBA city around. Like. Oh man, that thing was translated into into Chinese. I, I think I saw Farsi, uh, French. I mean, people around the world hate the Clippers as well. I, I don't think I don't think it was just Farsi saying, re, replying and saying the quote again. I you know there were enough actual you know writing on on Twitter to say, hey, look, people are actually discussing this in other languages that I'm not going to translate. Someday Lee Jenks- <laughs> Jenkins or somebody of that ilk will write a think piece on how much. Everybody hated the Clippers, and it will be awesome. I hope so. All right, so, uh, A.B., do you have any final thoughts on this edition of the CSN Kings Insider Podcast? I do. I think Rudy Gay playing the four is something that you will see against the Clippers in the rematch, and he did really good against Blake in the fourth quarter, and I thought that was a pretty dynamic lineup that they put on the floor Rondo was in it at the end. Rondo had some problems at the end. We'll see if that continues. But as far as the the Blake Griffin problem, Rudy was able to neutralize that a little bit. So if you're betting on a big allotment of minutes to the Kufos, Willie Cauley Stein group in that game, I would go on the under for whatever the expectation is and look for that. Maybe Carl keeps it in his pocket for the fourth quarter, but I bet you Doc Rivers knows that, that that was something that worked. I totally agree. I think Rudy Gay was very good in that game, but I want to see Willie Cauley Stein against Blake Griffin. I do. I do too. His length. I, I want to see. I just want to see him in general. I do too, and I think we're going to. Uh, certainly, that's what George Carl uh, was talking about on Thursday. So, 
That's going to do it for this edition of the CSN Kings Insider Podcast. We did not have a guest today, and it was for good reason. Uh, we can absolutely talk, give you some uh, some things that you want. So hopefully you enjoyed it. Um, we'll be back next week. Make sure to subscribe to us on iTunes or just rebuilding that base after all of our years on a different podcast. Uh, but we definitely would uh, like your support. So... For Aaron Bruski, I am James Ham. Thank you for tuning in to the CSN Kings Insider Podcast. Have a good day.